0: You know, when I first conceived of us doing this uh, one-word study, I had in mind that on a week-to-week basis, most of our lessons would be a sort of 15 to 20-minute devotional-type lesson that would be a, a capstone on the studies that we've all done during the week. And, and I do still think some of them will be like that and, and we'll get there. But on the other hand, these are all really weighty and important terms, and sometimes, And sometimes, there I go. (laughs) Sometimes, uh, like tonight, when we're looking at creation, I think we've got a word here that uh, carries a lot of baggage with it that we might need to sort of clear out of the way so that we can see the the main point of why this even matters. When I was a, a teenager, I was really interested in Christian evidences. Uh, I remember I was 12 or 13 and Burt Thompson, who was then the director of Apologetics Press, that's an organization a lot of you are probably familiar with, they do good work. Burt Thompson came and he presented a seminar, Creation versus Evolution. And man, I was there every single uh, night. I just absolutely ate that stuff up. I was enthralled by it. When I was 19, I remember Uh, being invited to speak on this weekend sort of uh, back-to-school type youth event and I Was assigned the topic of the education that's eternally important. That's the topic. It's kind of open-ended and I chose to talk about Arguments for the existence of God There's the cosmological argument that is that every Finite contingent being has a cause, and so we have to posit either an infinite regress of causes, which is, of course, illogical, or else we get to an infinite necessary being, an uncaused cause. That's the best argument for the existence of God, incidentally. There's the teleological argument that is the argument from design. We look around and we see design in this world, and so we know that there must be a designer. There's the ontological argument, that is, in my mind I can conceive of the greatest being possible, that's God. And we know He must exist because existence is greater than non-existence. There's the moral argument, that is, human beings have this innate concept of what's good and what's evil. If there's a law, there must be a law giver, so there's a God. And you can go on with that. There's more than that, and I presented more than those. I enumerated all of them. I went into detail. I don't have a recording of that lesson, and I'm glad because that was just as boring as you're probably sitting there thinking that it was boring. Uh, that, those notes have long since gone into file 13. That was a bad idea. You know, you could see the interest just draining out of people's faces as their eyes glazed over, and I was sitting there, you know going through it and, and wanting to be able to get down and be done with it, they, they can't all be winners. Kelly's probably experienced that, haven't you? You look out there and you see it, yeah, they're just sometimes they're not good. I say all that to say that a lesson on creation could easily take that same sort of apologetic line. And In fact, if you were reading through those devotionals this week, you'll see that some of those lessons uh, started to tread on that same sort of ground a little bit, and I do think that apologetics have a place. I think they're important primarily in demonstrating that Christianity is not unreasonable. That's important in the face of an increasingly secular society for one thing or in the face of challenges to our faith. Some have faced that when they've gone off to school. Uh, You might face it from unbelievers who are friends of yours. Even when we have doubts ourselves, to be able to know that Christianity is fundamentally reasonable and rational, that's important. We can prove that Christianity is rational. But you see, even that has limits. I can present to you a logical and philosophical argument for the existence of God. But even if I demonstrate that God exists, I can't know anything about that God apart from his self-revelation in Scripture. The most I could say is that there is a God. I wouldn't know anything about him without this and accepting this testimony of who god is against any other sort of competing claims that requires faith i have to place my trust in what's written here now on the other hand that's not a blind faith it's reasonable it's rational because i can also present to you a philosophical and a historical argument For the inspiration of scripture and why it's reliable and trustworthy and why we can accept what it says But even here I can't prove to you that the Bible is the Word of God The most I can prove is that it's not unreasonable to believe that In fact, that's uh, when I came here and tried out over a year ago, which is hard to believe now but uh, the Bible class I presented was on that very thing you see Accept this as the word of God requires an act of faith its trust in what this claims So with all of that said when it comes to creation I'm not too personally interested in Christian evidences Anymore not saying that they don't have their place but I've read a number of articles from believers some of whom her who are scientists who will tell you that there are holes in the theory of evolution Well, that shouldn't be surprising to us Because the physical sciences are designed to explain the natural world as it is right now and that's based on observation it's based on uh, repeatable reproducible experiments in a laboratory Well, obviously, any sort of claims that we make about the origin of life or the universe aren't subject to that sort of typical method. So the usual methodology is limited in its utility. On the other hand, I have read articles also from believers, people who are much more highly trained in the study of the Old Testament than I am, who will tell you that Genesis chapter 1 is not meant to be taken literally in terms of what it says about the mechanics of God creating the world. That is, it's written in a style that's akin to poetry. That too shouldn't surprise us because we know that in other places we can't take the Bible literally. It's trying to be poetic. Sometimes even when it's talking about the natural world and God's creation, it's that way. And would it surprise you to know that we have writings from early Christians from the third and the fourth and the fifth centuries? writing about creation, and they don't take this account literally the way many do today. I say all that not because I'm endorsing either one of those two viewpoints. My point here instead is that when we focus on those sorts of questions, I worry that we're missing the forest for the trees. Sometimes we approach the text asking the wrong questions. Or asking questions of it that it was never intended to answer. When all the facts are rightly understood, there will be no conflict between science and Scripture. God's the author of the universe, and God's the author of Scripture, and I'm certain that everything it claims about the natural world is correct. But that means that our science has to be accurate, and our understanding of scripture has to be accurate. And I'm not convinced that either of those two things is necessarily the case when it comes to this issue. But my point is, that's okay. Because our salvation and our faith doesn't hinge on how we interpret this precisely and in fact it's impossible for me to prove to you scientifically that God created the universe just like the existence of God just like uh, the inspiration of scripture the most I can say is that it's not unreasonable to believe that God created the universe after all if science depends on empirical reasoning I can't see God I can't measure him I can't taste him touch him nothing like that but you see what's striking to me is that scripture never tries to prove to us that God exists. It doesn't try to prove to us that God created the world. It doesn't try to prove to us that this is His Word. It just accepts those things as givens. It states them as fact. Opening verse of the Bible, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And however we want to try to explain that, that is something that we must believe. And that's what's fundamental. That's what we want to talk about tonight. The Hebrew word translated as create here is bara, And this is a word that is only used in Scripture of God's creative activity. It's a word that means create in the absolute sense, in terms of initiation. He's not just using materials that already exist. He's creating out of nothing. Used only of God, not of humans. In fact, used only of Yahweh, the God of Israel. It's never used for any pagan gods either. This is a unique claim about the one true God himself. The same thing is true of a Greek word that's used in the New Testament. Ketitzo. Ketitzo, pardon me. Ketitzo is the noun. Ketitzo. This is used, again, only of the creative acts of God in the New Testament. And the point here is that God's creative activity is unique. It's unlike anything else. He and He alone is capable of that. And that's what we want to consider in the rest of our time this evening. Because when we realize that God is the creator, that he's made this world and everything that's in it, this concept of creation, that has important implications for how we understand God, for how we understand the world, and for how we understand ourselves. So first of all, as it relates to God, as the creator, God is the source of everything. He created the heavens and the earth, right? Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Not only that, he created human beings a little bit later in that chapter, verse number 27. In fact, we saw this last week in John chapter 1. All things were made by him. Without him was not anything made that was made. So God is distinct. From his creation on the one hand he rules over it he watches over it the term the technical term that's often used to describe this is transcendent that is that God's up above over the top of his creation he's greater than it he's independent of it but at the same time scripture also shows us that God is very much involved in creation. And I'm not only talking here about in the sense of initially forming it, but he continues to be the one who maintains it. All things hold together in him, Paul says in Colossians chapter 1. Or in his sermon on Mars Hill in Acts 17, Paul says that in him we live and we move and we have our being. Or the Hebrews writer says in chapter 1, verse 3, He upholds the universe by the word of His power. So God continues to be active in and involved in His creation. And the technical term that's usually used for this is imminent. That is the idea that God continues to remain in and to be involved in creation. So God is both transcendent and God is imminent god is over above ruling creation but god is also active in involved with creation and i'm not just pointing that out to throw out some terminology here the point is that this scriptural understanding of god stands in sharp contrast to a lot of unbiblical understandings that people have of god today and that are actually Uh, Pervasive people might not know that they think this way, but this is the way that they think about God Uh, first of all, there's materialism Materialism is the worldview that's most common for unbelievers today and by that I mean that this physical world That's all that there is nothing more. There is no God. We believe in you know a a self-existent universe now obviously Scripture with its concept of a creator stands against that. There is a God. And I know that everyone who's here tonight would reject that materialistic worldview. But on the other hand, when we look at the world around us, and I think especially true in our country or in the Western world in general, how many professing Christians are only concerned with success, on their job, or with acquiring more money, or with acquiring more possessions, or with satisfying their own own wants and their own needs, those people are practically materialists, aren't they? It wouldn't make any real difference in the way that they lived if they didn't believe in God. The idea of God as a creator also stands in contrast to pantheism. That's a second big worldview, and that is that the whole universe is God or is part of God. So to think about those big terms, this is that God is imminent. He's in the world, but he's not transcendent. He's not over and above it. This is the concept of most Eastern religions, that is that Uh, The whole universe really is God, and your whole goal in life is to try to uh, merge your consciousness with that of the universe. I want to disappear, I want to be at at one with God. It's also what you see in a lot of New Age sort of beliefs where, you know, we think the universe wants this sort of thing and we talk about the way that we're being led by it. I, I think even a lot of Christians have this sort of idea that, well, I know that Scripture says this. but. I just have this feeling in my heart or I feel like God is leading me here. And I think it all boils down to this idea that we don't think of God as over and above us. We think of him as here inside us and leading all of us. Scripture portrays God as a unique, distinct person. And furthermore, it portrays us as unique and distinct, not just part of this universal oneness. We're made in God's image after all. And so we need to reject this and and any other sort of new-age views that are based on it. Third big worldview is that of deism. That is, essentially, that God is transcendent, but He's not imminent, to use those terms again. So, in other words, God is over and above the world, but He's not involved in it in any real sense. He created it and then He just stepped away. He's not that interested anymore. The analogy that's usually used is uh, like a watchmaker who created everything, wound it all up, and now he steps back and he lets it go. Most of the founding fathers, for example, were deists. That was a really popular view in 18th century Britain. Nobody that I know of (laughs) would claim to be a deist today. But how many Christians are practically deists, when we don't have any real active prayer life, when we don't have any real sense of worship or awe or or wonder on account of God as creator, when we don't have any real sense of fear of him, we're not concerned with what he thinks, we're just living our lives on however we want to. We don't have any sort of uh, sense of, of trust in him on a daily basis, that is, that he literally is here helping to make provision for us. See, if we're lukewarm, half-hearted Christians, it's essentially because we're practical deists. See, again, these terms aren't important that you remember them or, in fact, that anyone would necessarily describe themselves this way, but what we're talking about is real, practical worldviews. This is how people think. And a proper doctrine of creation Stands in contrast and as a corrective to all of these improper views of God God is the creator and He made this world for his glory creation reflects His glory Uh, he created human beings for that purpose we looked at this passage last Sunday morning But Isaiah chapter 43 God says that he created humans for my glory whom I formed and made But God actually created all of the world to show His glory. The beginning of the 19th Psalm, the heavens declare the glory of God and the skies above show His handiwork. What does creation say about God? Mostly, it attests to His power and to His wisdom. Listen to what Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 10, verse 12. It is He who made the earth by His power Who established the world by his wisdom and by his understanding stretched out the heavens. Who could look into space and see the sun and the stars and all of the other planets and then look beyond that throughout the Milky Way galaxy and the billions of stars and beyond that to all of these other galaxies and this vast expanse of the universe and not get a sense of God's power? Who could look at a leaf on a tree or look at the way that the human hand works or look at a cell under a microscope and not get a sense of God's wisdom? His power, His design, these things are far beyond our comprehension and when we see those things, that should cause us to glorify Him. And so that leads us to what creation itself, what the world itself has to tell us. God created the universe for His glory. We've seen that, right? And we should expect that if God had a particular purpose, well, He should have been able to accomplish that purpose. So we should expect the world to reflect His glory, shouldn't we? Well, what do we see in Genesis chapter one every time that God made something new? What does he say about it? It's good. And in fact, the very last time he says that in chapter one, verse 31, he's finished and he says, it's very good. God delights in his creation. Now, it's true that, that sin has marred that to an extent, but God still loves his creation. God still delights in it. God still takes care of it. After all, He's actively involved in it. Creation's good. And that means we ought to see it as good too. We ought not to deny ourselves things that are good in themselves in some misguided uh, attempt at asceticism, that is, is disciplining our body as if this world isn't good. There's people all throughout history have thought that, but Scripture tells us that, no, it's good. What God's created is good. Paul warns about people, 1 Timothy chapter 4, people who would forbid marriage, that's part of what God created and called good in the beginning, people who would enjoin abstinence from certain foods, You know what Paul calls those things in 1 Timothy 4? He calls those things doctrines of demons. Instead, he says, 1 Timothy 4, verse 4, everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. God's creation can be abused, it can be misused for selfish and for sinful purposes, but the danger of that ought not to keep us from appreciating it and using it properly. Just two chapters later in 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul warns about people who are lovers of money. Now that's abusing something that God's actually given, created as a, a gift. But instead, Paul says, 1 Timothy 6, verse 17, for the rich in this present age charge them not to be haughty nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. We mustn't abuse our wealth, but we should still enjoy what God's given us. That's the purpose of these things he gives us. We need to seek to be like those early Christians. They ate their food with glad and generous hearts, it says in Acts chapter two and verse 46. They were always thankful for what God had given them. They were always mindful of his provision for them. And so we ought also to be more thankful for God's creation. And we could demonstrate this in any number of practical ways. I've, I've been thinking about that this week. And, You're going to think this is silly, but I mean this sincerely. Uh, Could we demonstrate that thankfulness for God's creation by something as simple as just trying to eat more foods that we don't like? I'm serious. I know it's funny, but I'm serious. These are things God created for our enjoyment, for our benefit. I'm not saying you have to ultimately like it, but you know, go ahead and try broccoli again if you don't like it. This is something God made for you. You might find out you enjoy it. I like broccoli, so that's okay for me. Uh, I'll keep trying avocados. Uh, Not only because they're good for you, but I I actually am going to give this more thought. This is something God made for me. I, I should try to enjoy it and appreciate it. Can we go out into nature and look around us and see the beauty of it and really appreciate God's handiwork more? We took a vacation this past summer. We went to California, but we stopped and we saw the Grand Canyon along the way. We went to Sequoia National Park. We saw the largest trees in the entire world. It, those things are staggering to see, and it boggles my mind how people can see those things and still not believe in God, that God created those wonders. We should see those things and appreciate them and be in awe of them and thank God for them worship him because that praise him but this means also that we should take care of creation we're stewards over it think about back to the beginning genesis chapter 2 what's the job that God gave Adam he was to tend the garden to dress it to keep it now unfortunately this is one of those issues that's become politicized and I'm not trying to take any sort of position there and in fact I'm not talking about what a government should do period as far as this is concerned but I'm saying this Christians need to care about the environment Christians need to take care of that we have that responsibility because this is God's world he made it and it's good finally the idea of creation of God as the creator and us as creatures, well, that, that should shape us too. For one thing, as creatures, we have a responsibility to our creator. Paul writes in Romans chapter 9, verse 21, has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? God creates us with the freedom to accept him or to reject him. But when we have this proper understanding of his role as creator and the fact that we're creatures, well, then we can't help but to recognize how we're completely and utterly dependent upon him. He's the creator. We're the creatures. He has everything. We have nothing except what he's chosen to bless us with. He possesses wisdom and power, as we've seen. We're we're weak and ignorant by comparison. How can we not respond to that with thanksgiving? How can we not worship Him on account of that? And that knowledge should keep us from elevating anything else to God's place. Paul writes again in Romans, this is chapter 1, he says that God gave them up, he's listed a catalog of sins people committed. He says, therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to dishonoring their bodies among themselves, Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. How can we ever do that if we truly understand our place? And yet how often do we elevate things of this world to God? How do we elevate ourselves to the position of God? One and only to worship and to serve ourselves. A proper understanding of creation will correct that. This also not only affects our relationship with God, it should affect our relationship with others. This was something that was touched on in one of those lessons that you read and I also talked about it Wednesday night, so I won't belabor this point, but if we understand not only that we need to take care of and love and appreciate God's creation, but that other human beings are made in His image, well, then we should want to treat other people right. If we truly appreciated that, wouldn't we we treat other people better? The last thing I want to note is that we need to remember the Creator is ultimately the one in control of things. This is essentially what he reminded Job. You remember in the book of Job, uh, Job has been afflicted and he challenges God. He wants answers. God, you need to come down and tell me why you've done this this way. And it says in Job 38, verse 1, the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I'll question you, and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? It continues on in this vein. But the point is, God made everything. He continues to oversee it with his wisdom and with his power. Job is weak and ignorant by comparison. He doesn't know what he's talking about. We need to continue to trust in that same creator, in his wisdom, in his power, in his benevolent rule. When we see God as he is, as the creator, when we see this world as his creation, when we see ourselves as creatures, that should renew our faith and our trust in him. He not only cares, but he knows what he's doing. We should have faith in him. If you're here this evening and you haven't had that sort of faith, that trust that you ought, Maybe you've been trusting in yourself instead. You need to make changes in your life tonight in a public way. If you have any need at all, we invite you to make it known now while we stand and while we sing.